Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is March 2nd, 2018. This is episode 2174, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it is time for the Expert Council Q&A show, which is good today, because uh, I'll apologize in advance. During my talking, you may hear some serious background noise. There's a bunch of large men out on my back patio where they're building my outdoor kitchen, and they're running a concrete saw on and off today. So you may get a bit of a rumbling background, and you know... We'll just have to deal with that. But since most of the show will be the expert counsel talking today, that should be mitigated. What do we got on deck for you today? Well, we have balancing concerns over toxic chemicals with reality. Along with a bit on dealing with your relatives who are not on board with your healthy lifestyle choices. We have that question for Gary Collins. We have getting involved with local small government with Nicole Sauce. Growing and storing culinary herbs with Chef Keith Snow cooking heritage chickens, and still getting that crispy skin with a tender bird for Erica Strauss, determining the true sharpness of your cutting tools and how sharp they really need to be with Patrick Rorman, reducing your tax footprint with John Pugliano, and getting into college as a homeschooler with Mike and Sue LaPreeze. And I will be taking a question on alternatives to the AR-15. There's actually not a lot of them in the way this person's asking it, but I know why they're asking it, so I'll also be talking about mitigating possible future regulations that come out of the grub gun grabber world. And I'll tell you why I wouldn't be that worried about it right now, but thinking into the future is probably not a bad idea. And we don't have a history segment today, and we're going ad-free today for everyone, so we will be getting right into it in just a second. Do want to mind you, remind you real quick, though, if you want to help support this show and the work that we do, you can uh, become a member of the Member Support Brigade. And to learn more about that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. But it works this way. You basically support the show for about 20 cents an episode. So if you think you're, we're worth two dimes a day, uh, consider joining the MSB and get all the great discounts and, well, get your money back. How great is that? Uh, as always, uh, law enforcement, military, Peace Corps, uh, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, any of that, if you are active duty or prior service, you qualify for a discount. Email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and we'll uh, get back to you as soon as possible with a discount code. Please do that before, not after you join. With that, let's leap right into it. Question for Gary Collins on concerns over the toxic chemicals and all the things that are around us every day, and making those healthy lifestyle choices in spite of relatives that maybe don't understand our decisions to live a healthier, chemical-free, or better diet type of life. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method and PrimalPowerMethod.com, where we discuss all things health, wellness, paleo, primal, simple living, living off the grid, being more self-reliant, not being a knucklehead. How's that sound? <laughs> but... uh Good question again today about dealing, and this is common for a lot of people trying to make a change, life change as far as health in dealing with, it can become overwhelming. And the biggest thing I would recommend is, is don't replace one stressor with another. And what I mean by that 
is you, you start to look at all the chemicals you're exposed to, you know, your laundry detergent, you know, your fabric softeners, you know, ha- shampoo, je- hair gel, you know, whatever, lotion, sunscreen, your clothing and your sheets, your, your mattress, your recliner, your car. And next thing you know, you're losing your mind. And the best way to look at it is the human body is meant to be able to, to, deal with chemicals and to eradicate them out of the body the best it can. What we have today is we're just bombarded, overwhelmed by the things that on the outside of our body, but also we put inside. So you start combining that with poor diet, eating a lot of processed foods, a lot of processed sugar. Next thing you know, you've got a perfect storm. So what I always recommend people is do the best you can. You know, that's all you can do. And don't stress out about it because I've been around people, you know, the, you know, the type, the little obsessive compulsive, a little hypochondriac in them and, and they're literally worry, worry warts, you know, the hand sanitizer all the time, you know, it just, it, they, it just becomes every minute of their day is spent worrying about being exposed to something. And you just can't do that. You just got to live the life, the, live your life the best you can, make the best choices you can, and you should be fine. Now, dealing with relatives and friends, that is one of the biggest challenges you will face when you start changing your life for the better, especially on the health side. People, it's hard for a lot of people to understand because today we're so far removed to what the human animal, and I call us animals because that's what we are. We're so far removed from how we're really supposed to live and cohabitate with our environment. We're just way out of whack. So when dealing with friends and relatives, what I do is I just, I'm not real pushy on anything. I don't preach. I don't tell them they're doing stuff wrong. I just kind of let them live their life. I leave, live, live my life the best I can and lead by example. Now, when they give you gifts and things like that, it's tough. You know, my mom's always trying to give me a bunch of junk food, a bunch of candy and crap. And I just, I just, now I just tell her, no, I used to just take it and honestly give it away or throw it away. And that's what you have to do. If you get the pajamas, you know, with the fire retardant on it and you're, you don't want your kids wearing them, you know, you got to make a choice. If they, if your, if your relatives come over and they don't see the kids wearing the pajamas, are they going to throw a fit? Well, you know, maybe it's worth it to have them wear them every once in a while when the relatives come over. It won't kill them. You know what I mean? It, it's a balance. I hope that helps. Uh, you know, with, with, with a lot of this, it, it is, it's a balance. Especially, like I said, when dealing in social circles, it gets really complicated. And a lot of people who change their lives, and this especially for me on the health exercise side with dealing with clients is it sometimes it ends up being actually a shift of their social circle completely. Like they start moving away from these friends that they've had and start communicating with their relatives. And I don't mean that in negative, but don't go out there and tell everyone to go screw off. You don't want to talk to them anymore. That's not what I mean. But there's times when you have to make a decision in life on whether people are going to have too much of a negative impact in your life and you must move on or if you can deal with it and be able to coexist with them and their little different beliefs of what you're doing or what you believe in.
that's life in general. So again, hope that helps. Leave any more questions you have and uh, feel free to keep sending them in. Thanks. You know, just a quick bit of follow up there. I, I have gotten to where I just don't, I don't mind telling people no. I, I know that's not really a big surprise to many of you that have listened for a while, but I've, I actually have always been with family and friends and stuff. You know, well, we have birthday cake today because it's a birthday and fine, I'll eat a piece of this crap. Uh, and I usually don't put it that way, but I'll go ahead and I'll eat a little bit of it, you know, just to, to pacify them. And I've gotten to where I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I, you know, I appreciate the offer, but I'm not going to eat. And people do get a little bit offended. And it's like, listen, you know, I, I, I cook food all the time and people come over and they choose not to eat certain components of what I've cooked. And I don't get all butt hurt over that or anything. I, I do find it annoying when somebody that would, would eat it for nothing to do with health reasons won't try something that they've never tried before. I find that to be kind of a, not, I don't get ass hurt over anything, but I just find it kind of like, you know, really, you, you could try it. Um, but when it comes to something like health or whatever, um, you know, I took a lot of weight off years ago, and I put a lot of it back on. And Dorothy and I decided that we were going full tilt back to the way things used to be um, after Christmas this year. And, and we did that. And in, in that short period of time, I, I now need to take – I have a belt that was made for me uh, by Jason Davies over at Lenwood Leather. I need to actually take that belt and mail it to him. Because I'm out of holes. There's no, I am on the last hole of that belt, and it's getting to be where that belt no longer serves the purpose of a belt using that hole. And recently we had a thing with some extended family and all, and they're like, well, don't you want to at least have, I mean, I made these cupcakes. And I was like, there's nothing about that that is worth me putting one pound back on. I'm happy, I'm healthy, I eat as much as I want, but I eat certain things and don't eat other things. And I feel the same way about certain things that I just choose not to partake in or I don't want my children partaking in. I will say no, I will say it nicely, but I'm not going to be drug into your world because it's always, well, but it's a birthday, it's a celebration, it's a this. You know what, there's something like that for somebody every other damn week. So it becomes like it's no longer a big deal. So when I am going to have something that's kind of off the reservation, I want it to be a big deal. And somebody's crappy cupcake is not the big deal. It does not a big deal make. For instance, last night we diced up a little bit of potatoes that went into a, a saute with beet greens out of the aquaponics system. So that was a carb thing. But that was fantastic, and that was totally worth doing. And I would rather have you know a few ounces of potatoes with my steak once every couple weeks and cheat a little bit on the carbs in that mitigated circumstance rather than eat somebody's crappy cupcake with, with fructose corn syrup icing on it. And I think it's okay to just say no. I also agree Gary, with Gary 100% on the concept of do not overstress this. If you, it's like Stephen Harris says about EMP. Once you go the path of EMP, forever will it consume you. I've seen people get on this. I don't want anything with a chemical. I don't want this. I don't want that. And it gets ridiculous. It gets ridiculous. The, the, the classic example of this back in the 80s was a guy that worked for my father named Tony. He ended up in the hospital almost dead because he went on this quest and he had gotten down to the only thing he was actually consuming was broccoli tea. He boiled broccoli and drank the water and threw the broccoli away. I'm not saying everybody that takes this path is going to get that bad, but that's how bad this guy got. He had to be fed through a tube to get him back in shape to where he could eat again. Don't replace one stressor with another. I love that from Gary. Next up, I have a question for Nicole Sauce on working with local government, specifically very small local governmental bodies. 
Hey, TSP, Nicole Suss here taking a question from Mike. Mike asks, how does local small government work and how do you start figuring it out? After a bit of a kerfuffle in my small New Hampshire town over the actions of the budget committee, I watched a YouTube video of one of our meetings and found that a lot of time was spent by town officials attempting to explain to the disgruntled attendees how pieces of the town system worked. Whew, that must have been fun for them which left me thinking about how little I knew about as well. So how does someone coming into a new town or city from outside begin figuring this out? I'm pretty sure I want no part of the mess. Good call, Mike. But local government is potentially within my circle of influence, correct? And knowing their system better than they do seems like a smart move in the long run, even if I'm not looking to run for office myself. Thanks, Mike Onzello. Okay, Mike, well... Boy, A, uh, we need more people in office, unfortunately, especially in local office, who are liberty-oriented. The cancer starts with the entry level into politics. So I'm glad you asked this question. And the way I read it is you're really asking two things. One, how do I orient myself? And two, how do I get involved? I think the most important thing to understand as you're orienting yourself on the area is that politicians use your ignorance of process to control you. That's what they do. If if you come to them to talk about something, they will throw process up in your face if they don't want to deal with it because you did it wrong. And they can almost always find a way that you did it wrong. So orienting yourself on how things are, are organized is not a bad idea if you're going to get involved locally. And we'll talk about this in two parts. So today I'm going to talk about how to orient yourself. So the first question you need to ask is who rules you? Any of you who are liberty oriented and listen to this podcast didn't like me asking that question, but that is how they see themselves. Who rules you? And you'll find out if you're in a town that there's usually a town government or a city government. You will find counties also have a layer of government and then you usually have your state and federal, right? So hopefully you've already understood how your state and federal work by now and go to your local, you'll look at what's the overlap between the town government and the county government. Or even worse, do you have a neighborhood association? That's another layer of rulers, right? These are all people trying to tell you what to do. So you want to list all those out, figure out where the district lines are for those rulers. And then once you have that, look at how they're organized. So in many cities, it's divided up into multiple districts. Figure out which one you're in. That's the one you need to know the most about. In most counties, the same thing. You have a county government, but you'll have multiple districts with different commissioners, for example, overseeing that area. Those are all elected offices. And then once you have that, draw out the who, the what, and the how. So what I do is I take an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper for each of the rulers. And I make one for the county, and I write out what in the county executive office, like the different departments and offices that are there. I figure out how they get into that office. Are they elected or appointed and what they are responsible for? And I do that for county and I do that for town. And then I, you know, you might do your school district for, for goodness sakes, do your school district. And then you put them out 
Like I put them up on the wall and I look at them and I do this in part, like I have to physically manipulate stuff like this to really understand how the pieces work together so that the process of me writing it out works. Some people might want to draw flowcharts. That's fine too. You just want to figure out who's there, how they got there and what they're responsible for. And then you want to look for the overlap in jurisdictions between the county and the city because you'll find off they're handing things back and forth all the time. Same goes for your state government. Like when you dive into your budget later, which is part of this process, you're going to see all sorts of pass-through money. And it makes a lot more sense if you see how the different pieces work together, have overlap in jurisdiction and that sort of thing. And then number four, ask some questions, like look at the overlap and then go and talk to, they'll be so delighted to talk to you, by the way, as long as you control your inner asshole and don't be judgy, just go in there, put the asshole on a shelf, go in and start asking, okay, well, I see the buses are overseen by the state. So how does that work on the county level? Is that frustrating for you? Like, how does that, or do they hand off and appoint some, like, just start asking questions, find out how things work. People are usually delighted to talk to you about what they do as long as they don't think you're doing a watchdog number on them. And then once you have that, the next step, and this is going to be the most time consuming, pull the budgets and learn the budget process. That's two pieces. So you can do an open records request because most budgets are public record unless you live in a really weird area that hides their budgets. And what you want to do is go and say, you know, I'm trying to better understand how things work. I'd like to see the budget. And they'll either say, sure, here it is, look at it, or they'll be really resistant and make you go through the approved state process of writing a written open records request, which is really fun. Most states have forms for that, or they'll have a, you know, they'll say you have to write a letter um, some of them allow you to do it electronically. Others, you have to do it physically. Here we have a form you print out from the Internet that's on the state site, and you write everything in, and you go hand it to them. And again, as long as you're controlling your inner asshole, they're not usually as resistant to showing you the budget and you want to set that up as your learning so that you can ask questions about the budget as you go. Because if you come off as a big watchdog gotcha sort of person, they're going to look for ways to throw process at you right here. This is the place where they do it. It's one of the places. So, you know, as you look at the budget, if you're not a numbers person, you need to become one. If you want to be involved in your local government, you need to understand the budget. That's one of the places it's the like most beneficial to put your time because that shows you the process and flow of the money. And that shows you the process and flow in turn of the power. And this is at the heart of so many objections to why nothing can ever be changed or reduced. We can't change it because that's really a federal block grant and blah, blah, blah. We don't have control over that. We're just passing it through. Or, hey, it's free money. What's your problem, right? As you dive into budgets, you'll find out a lot of those free money projects really aren't. They are partial free money and there's local money too. And then there's a local commitment long term. And you just want to see how all of that flows. And you will see a lot of pass-through activity, by the way. Refrain from showing how frustrated you are by the $250,000 water line that serves eight families or the $20,000 park play equipment. This is not the time to worry about that. Just dive in and look at that. And once you have that all in place, you'll probably have unearthed a few issues that have captured your interest. You know, and that means 
that you can use that then to start getting involved gently and not as a jerk. Because again, if you're really looking to be elected to office, coming in as the asshole out of the chute usually doesn't get you easily elected, especially if you're a foreigner coming into some location. And by foreigner, I mean, you're not from here, are you, right? If you're just learning the new area, you want to come in a little gently and really observe because there are a lot of things going on relationship-wise, long-established families, power structures. You want to start understanding those things. And part two, which is coming in the next expert council session, we'll be talking about how to get involved. So for the expert council, this is Nicole Sauce. If you want to know more about me, head on over to livingfreeintennessee.com where you will find a podcast and other random musings. And Jack, thanks so much for your show. Everybody, make it a great week. So I'm not going to give any different advice than Nicole did at all about getting involved or how or what. And you guys know me as an anarchist. I try to stay out of these things. But I do agree that we need good people in these positions. And this is what I think you have to keep in mind. The smaller the body of government, okay? Now, listen, what I mean by that is not the number of bodies. I mean the smaller the area governed in a Republican system of government, the greater for the potential of abuse. Now, that sounds crazy because we're supposed to be for small government. Well, small government would be reducing the size of the federal government by, let's say, 80% or 50%. or I would take 60% uh, or 40% reduction in the size of the federal government right now any day. That's the only way to actually create what you'd call small government. Because what you have to realize is every body of government under the federal government exists for more rules and regulation than the federal government already has. So Nicole mentioned an HOA. This is an example of people that just can't get enough government in their life. They just like, you know, shit, I need more. I need more. Because in a Republican system of government, due to what we would call supremacy clause, and everybody talks about federal supremacy, but people don't realize in, in, in our government is a Republican form of government. In other words, it's a republic. In that form of government, there's supremacy at all levels. In other words, a city law can be, over, can be uh, nullified uh, specifically by a county law. If the county says you cannot do something and the city says, oh, yes, you can do this. The county says this is illegal. The city says, yes, it, no, it is. It's, you know, it, it's, it's legal that any court, and assuming there's not something else going on, if they're just laws in conflict and both laws are constitutional at the state and national level, The county government has supremacy over the city government. Some cities are broken into townships, and the same type of thing applies. So the only thing, except we'll talk a little bit later about the state government, lowercase s, state of Texas, state of Florida. Beyond that, with pushback under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, the only thing that the smaller bodies of government can do is put in more laws and more regulations than already exist. And that's what you have to understand. So if, if I were to be talked into running for, let's say I lived in a smaller place than I do, and I was, you know, be talked to running to as a, a city council member or something, the only thing I'm there to do is say, we don't need to do shit. Whatever you want to do, I'm opposed to it. And that's probably why I would make a good candidate. Because I don't want any further restrictions. What possible restrictions do we need to implement that we don't already have? Unless it's to prevent the obstruction of other rights. So we might 
want to keep out a certain type of business from a city that would be able to gobble the whole city up. And I even see that as protectionist. Like in the end, it's up to people to decide, do I want to sell or keep my land? Do we want to put in certain invites? I can see places where you want to. And as soon as I, as soon as I start to go that way, I start thinking, no, that's, that's not you. That's not what you believe. I guarantee you, like, there are, you know, if, if you're talking about environmental protections, the federal government's had them out the butt. And it would be best that local governments try to figure out any way, if they think, like, this is really bad, like, okay, well, what current regulations are these people violating that they're somehow attempting to bypass? Because if you can get that done, then you're in pretty good shape. See what I'm saying? So just just keep that in mind. The smaller we think smaller government is better, and that means the existing body and the existing power getting less. But the smaller entity in a republic has the greatest capacity for abuse because it's adding on to what is already there. I think that's important. Anyway, next is a question for Chef Keith Snow on growing and storing culinary herbs. Okay, Jack. This is uh, an answer about. Um Growing and storing herbs. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to answer Stephanie's question about growing herbs. Specifically, Stephanie asked me, which herbs should I grow and which are best for long-term storage? Now, uh, Stephanie, that's kind of like asking me what shoes you should wear. I, uh, I know you should have some shoes and you probably want ones that are comfortable and good looking, but it's it's a sort of a personal thing but i'll just tell you what what i think and kind of wax on about it and also share a quick recipe for one of the herbs but um the thing with herbs is you'll find basically we'll just call it two types tender herbs and woody herbs now some of the woody herbs would be things like thyme sage rosemary um those are very Hardy. Now, I'll give you an example, and I'll give you some wisdom from my old neighbor, who is an unbelievable gardener, just tremendous. She grew so much wonderful things, and she told me that the best thing to do with those woody herbs is to get them established around your homestead. Now, when you walked out her um, kitchen door, she had just, you know, planting beds, and you want to give these things a lot more space than you think they'll need because, you know, a, a, a thyme bush, for instance, or rosemary, these things can easily have a spread of, you know, five and six feet, maybe even more. So when you're planting these, make sure you give enough space for them to mature and grow. But those woody herbs like that, thyme, um, sage to some extent, but definitely rosemary, these things um, will come back year year after year and they can take some fairly uh abusive conditions i mean if you live in the north pole i don't know um but we would see ours completely covered in snow and ice and they'd come back just fine in the spring and the summer and be wonderful so the ones that i really like to have on hand that are very versatile would be thyme sage rosemary, uh, oregano, and those are sort of some of the more um, hardier bushes that you can grow. Then the tender herbs. Now, this um, becomes more of a problem or problem, I'll say challenge to make it uh, seem less daunting, but things like cilantro, um, parsley, basil, um, mint, chervil. I mean, I could go on and on with um, useful herbs, tarragon. Um, we're going to talk about that one today in a, in a little bit. 
But those are great herbs to grow in containers and to have around your um, your kitchen as well. Now, I'll just give a quick plug for a growing system. Now, I've grown vegetables in just about every fashion there is from in the ground to raised beds to self-watering buckets to you know little window baskets i mean you name it i've i've tried it and one of the things that worked super well for me was a system called vertigro like v e r t i g r o and it comes out of florida and essentially what it is is um kind of like a hydroponic system and it was the one system that allowed us to grow a lot of food without a lot of fuss and basically how it works is there's a 55 gallon um Brute, it's called a, I think it's, uh, what's that brand? Rubbermaid Brute. So there's a 55 gallon Brute bucket on one end and inside is a submersible pump. And, you know, you feed this, this water is a, it's a nutrient solution and it's a chemical solution, you know, fertilizer, but, um, it's still, you just, you mix it together and you pour it in there and then it pumps it based on a timer up high over these, um, vertical, um, poles that have basket or not baskets they're styrofoam square containers and they're filled with something called a coconut core or I, I, i'm not sure how to pronounce it but it's c-o-i-r and it's basically the ground up coconut husks and the stuff is extremely dry and it comes compressed in a brick and then when you start wetting it it expands i mean like crazy amounts and you put that in there and it has a little bit of um, perlite i think in there or vermiculite one of the two but that's what you grow in and you just, um, so there's vertical towers and you have all these different, um, growing baskets that are filled with this coconut stuff and they self water. And 55 gallons is a lot of water. And you set it, you know, and the instructions have a certain, um, ratio of watering it. But this is a system that allowed us to grow a lot of different things from tomatoes to zucchini. Um, what else did we have in there? Peppers. If you like to grow peppers, this is probably one of the best systems ever. Uh, we just had insane amounts of banana peppers and uh, daddle peppers and jalapenos, you name it. So, and it works tremendous for tender herbs is, is the point I'm trying to make. So if you really like herbs and you don't have to have as many, these things, these systems are flexible because you can have one tower or multiple towers. We had four, I think. Um, but let's talk more about the tender herbs. Now, uh, cilantro is one that I've never been able to grow it uh, very well. It just tends to bolt to seed very quickly, and I don't get a very big harvest. It's super tender. It goes bad very quick, but it happens to be one of my most favorite herbs of all time. Um, but let's talk about one that people don't use very much, and before actually do that. We're going to talk about storing some of these. Now, um, in a long-term kind of situation where you want to have everything into your pantry that you can live on, not having any herbs in there and spices would be a bit of a, a bit of a bummer. So you want to take herbs and spices and spice blends, whatever you like, and vacuum pack them. Now, what I do is I'll take individual herbs and I'll, and not a ton, like I'll have two or three different maybe golf ball size um, bags that are stuffed with certain, you know, oregano or, um, you know, dried tarragon in, in the example I'm going to use in a minute. And I'll vacuum pack them using my vacuum packer. And then I'll put those inside another uh, thicker um, vacuum bag and then vacuum pack those. So those things are not going anywhere. And then the important thing is to make sure those are not um, 
going to get sun on them because that will shorten their life quite a bit. Now, I've used ones that uh, recently that I packed in 2011, and they were as good as the day I packed them. So you have to have a good vacuum machine, but those um, can give you a, a pretty decent shelf life. So one of the ones that I used recently because I want to be using them up is dried tarragon. Now, it's not a very popular herb, and it's one of the few herbs that I like um, in both its fresh and dried state. Now, the other day I made a soup and I used some dried tarragon. Now, tarragon has a flavor that's kind of hard to describe. It's sort of minty. It's very sophisticated in its flavor profile. Um, but you're going to find it to be awesome. Now, you can go to any supermarket and buy it dried, or better yet, if you go to a health food store that sells bulk items, um, look at their you know, like frontier spices, you'll find it in, in jars. Just make sure when you open it up, it should look green because if it's old, it's not going to look very green. But when you open it, it should have a smell similar to mint and licorice and anise altogether, anise. Um, and that's what's wonderful about this uh, particular herb. Now, um, some people might know it because of Bernays sauce. I mean, if you have a, a filet of beef or something like that, and it has Bernays sauce. That is basically a hollandaise sauce with the addition of um, some shallots and vinegar and also some tarragon. That's what turns um, the, uh, the hollandaise sauce into the Bernays sauce. So that takes one of the five mother sauces and makes it a compound sauce. That's the technical term. So that's a, a very popular use of tarragon. But let me give you a quick soup recipe. Now, this is dead simple and you're just going to be amazed. Um, and I was talking about this over at the Harvest Eating Podcast recently. Um, but I just made this because, like I said, I wanted to use up my tarragon. Now, take uh, – you, you need tomatoes. So we're going to make a – it's a creamy tomato tarragon soup, and it's wonderful. And I make a version of it that doesn't have any cream in it. It's a, you know, plant-based version, and <clears throat> it's wonderful. So what you want to do is take a small um, white onion. You're going to mince that up and put it into a pot with a little bit of olive oil and start to um, cook it down. Now, you're not looking to brown it by any means, but you want it to be very soft. So as it starts to soften up, you're going to put in one clove of garlic and cook that about a minute or so. Then you're going to take about two tablespoons of all-purpose flour and sprinkle that on the top of it. Now, if you're averse to flour, you could thicken this soup later on with a little cornstarch slurry and not have any uh, gluten. So um, in my case, I just use a little couple tablespoons of all-purpose flour, and you need to cook this flour with the onions and the garlic for about a minute or two. And this is on about a medium heat. You don't want any crazy heat here. And what you're doing is trying to cook out the amount of um, flour or the, the flavor of the flour. You don't want it to taste cakey. So once you cook it for a minute, then you're going to add in um, your tomatoes. Now, you can use just a can, and what I like to do is I store um, cans of whole plum tomatoes. And you could go for the fancier Italian brands like the San Marzano or look for a good brand that I seem to enjoy is Red Pack. Look for Red Pack in the store. They're, they're common everywhere, and they happen to be pretty good tomatoes. So you take those tomatoes, and let's just say you're going to make soup for two people. Um, you can use one 28-ounce can, open it up, and toss the tomatoes and the juice right into the, the pot. Now, you're going to start cooking this for a few minutes. Now, if you want to cream it out with cream, by all means, about, I don't know, a quarter cup maximum. And I'm going to sip some coffee here. 
<clears throat> excuse me, about a quarter cup maximum should do it on the cream. Or if you wanted to make it plant-based, you can take cashews that have been soaked, and then you can use a little bit of soy milk or almond milk and just blitz it in your Vitamix until it becomes a very thick, um, white sort of pasty substance. And then you can add about a quarter cup of that to the soup. And that will also sort of cream it out in a plant-based way, and it's still very delicious. Now, once you have all those ingredients in there, then you're going to take one teaspoon of your tarragon. Now, pour this into your hand first and take your into your palm, take your other hand and your fingers and start kind of um, squeezing it and rubbing it together, or pressing it into your palm. That helps to kind of wake it up and release the aromas and flavors that are in there. So once you do that, toss it in and stir it around. You're going to want to adjust the soup with um, salt and pepper. And the type of salt you use is up to you. Um, certainly kosher salt would work, but I, I do like the uh, Himalayan pink salt. I keep quite a bit of that in my long-term pantry. Um, salt is a rock, so it never goes bad. So that's a, that's a good thing. You can store it until, you know, 2080 and it'll still be good. But anyway, you season it up with some salt and pepper. And then what I like to do is either use an immersion blender or pour the whole thing into my Vitamix. And once it's very smooth, um, you're ready to serve it. Now, this herb here, tarragon, is going to make your cream of tomato soup taste, it's hard to explain, but like I said, sophisticated, um, anise, minty, all together, and it's got great texture, um, a really nice soup. And just watch it for consistency. Now, if you think it's too thick, you can certainly add a little um, broth to it. Um, I would definitely stay away from, um, you know, a meat broth or meat stock because those are just too heavy of flavors. I would go with something like a very light vegetable stock or even just purified water will work fine here. You don't need a lot. Um, I find if I do have to add, depending upon the tomatoes, um, if I have to add any liquid, it might be about a cup of water. But there's enough going on here flavor-wise for it still to be amazing. And this is a great soup, particularly, uh, you know, as the winter lingers on here. A bowl of this is going to be something that um, people really enjoy. And I've been making this soup for years. And every time somebody tries it, they're like, wow. And it's just a very, you know, you're taking basic, basic pantry ingredients and turning it into something pretty cool. So that's a great use for one of the culinary herbs. And I could sit here and talk to you for the entire show, but I'm already at 13 minutes, so I'll let you go. Hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks for supporting the Survival Podcast and also Harvest Eating. I want to encourage you all to go over to Food Storage Feast and enroll. We have lots of new content being added over there. And that's it. Thanks so much, everyone. Take care. I guess my addition to Keith's is I don't mind giving you, like, my list of herbs I think you should be growing. And if you don't like one, don't grow that. Uh, and, I mean, there's just certain herbs that I think are so universal and so useful that if you want to grow herbs, then grow these. Thyme, parsley, sage, basil, chives, rosemary, oregano, mint, and multiple types of mint, by the way, dill, lavender, lemon balm. Um, I would say lemongrass if you can. And I think a lot of people forget about this one, but garlic. I see garlic as an herb. And, you know, there's, there's, herbs are one of the easiest things to store. They really are. And, you know, your perennial herbs are great too because they'll come back year after year after year. So, uh, you know, in spite of what Keith was saying about how big, you know, uh, something like a rosemary bush can get, grow one. And then remember this. 
You know how big a rosemary bush gets? It gets as big as you let it. They make these things called pruners. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They either put them on T-spaz a couple times. You you take them and you go to a tree or a bush or a shrub or a vine. You stick them on there and you go clip, clip. And you can shape a rosemary bush like you'd shape any uh, evergreen. So um, And then thyme, I don't know where he's getting that because thyme's really a trailing herb. So, um, But anyway, I, those are the ones that like to me. And I would say you know chives definitely be another thing to look at. Uh, green onion is so damn easy to grow. I think if you have any garden space at all, any pots, pans, whatever, you name it, I don't care what it is, uh, and, and you buy green onions from the store, cut the tips off and plant the dadgone things. It's a constant supply. And then I know I do this with aquaponics, but you can do it with anything else. When you buy garlic, when you buy garlic, you'll notice like all your outer cloves are those nice big cloves, and you got those little spindly ones that are they're just not even worth peeling. Take all those little spindly cloves and put them in a flower pot, put them in aquaponics, whatever. Stick them in there in moisture, and they'll send up little scapes, basically. They're not true scapes. They're, they're garlic greens. And when they grow about six inches tall, use those as chives. They're, the flavor from those is fantastic. If you're going to cook with them, use them right at the end. They'll cook out the flavor because they're delicate really, really quickly, and they can scorch and burn on you. But used at the end, they're awesome. So... Uh, maybe it's time for another Jack Spearco culinary herb show. I kind of got a little bit of juices going there, thinking I like to cook, man. And, you know, I mean, herbs, it's time of year to be planting all this stuff and looking at the perennials. But that's my core list. Uh, next up, I have a question for Erica Strauss on cooking heritage chicken, a little bit older birds, a little bit tough, and trying to still get that crispy skin. Erica, take it away. Hey guys, Erica Strauss from Northwest Edible calling in this week to answer Sandy's question about how she should cook her heritage breed chickens to make them tender but still have crispy skin. So here's the details. Sandy tells me that she breeds for harvest her heritage chickens. Um, the breed is Delawares. She harvests them at ages 16, 18, and 20 weeks and they are fairly tender at younger ages but get tougher as they get older. So she wants to know if I have a recipe that would provide the crispy skin that her husband likes, uh, but still have tender meat because all the recipes she's tried that involve moist heat end up with chewy or rubbery skin. Okay, well, hi, Sandy. For this particular situation where you're talking about an older heritage bird, the truth is the meat is just never going to have the same type of tenderness as you get from a younger bird. And that's just the way it is, as you know. But the advantage, of course, is that the flavor of the meat meat is superior when it's had a little longer to develop. You're also absolutely right that cooking with moist heat will lead to better textured meat from an older heritage bird, but that moist heat doesn't lead to crispy skin. So at this point, I'm going to do one of my classic Erica science detours to explain moist and dry heat cooking methods for folks who might not know a lot about cooking. Moist heat first. Moist heat cooking is an umbrella term for a method of cooking where the food is cooked in the presence of moisture. This moisture could be steam, simmering water, a flavorful broth, milk, even in a few cases the trap juices or moisture from within the food itself. Another characteristic of moist heat cooking is that the temperatures you're dealing with are quite low. The boiling point of water is 212 degrees, so your moist heat cooked food is generally cooked at no higher a temperature than 212 degrees unless you go for something like a pressure cooker, which changes things. Specific moist heat cooking techniques include poaching, simmering, boiling, stewing, my very favorite, braising, and steaming. 
Low temperature cooking in the presence of moisture does a couple of important things. First, it causes starch to absorb water, soften, and swell, which is the reason we always cook pasta, rice, beans, and other starchy foods with a liquid. Second, long, low, moist heat cooking allows tough connective tissues that are present in meat to dissolve. Now, there's actually two main types of connective tissue in meat. The first is elastin, which is the thick, rubbery tissue that makes up tendons and the silver skin you'll find on some cuts of meat. Nothing cooks elastin away. It's always chewy and tough no matter what you do to it. So we trim it off with a knife as best we can before cooking. But there's another type of connective tissue called collagen. Collagen is found extensively within the muscle tissues of meat, surrounding and holding together bundles of muscle cells. And in some cuts of meat, like flank steak, you can see these very defined collagen bundles of muscle tissue quite clearly. By slicing across these bundles, or across the grain, as you'll sometimes hear it referred to, as we do with, say, grilled flank steak, we can minimize the size of any pieces of collagen that we have to chew and that helps make the meat feel more tender in our mouth. But there's another way to deal with collagen. In the right conditions, collagen will simply melt out of the meat, leaving it fork tender. As the collagen melts, it transforms into gelatin, which thickens and enriches sauces and stocks. So if you've ever made chicken stock and set it in the fridge only to have the whole thing set up like a jello mold, that's the natural result of the collagen in the chicken dissolving into gelatin and then that gelatin thickening and stabilizing the broth. Now, the right conditions to create this miracle of dissolving connective tissue is, you guessed it, long, low, gentle heat in the presence of moisture. For older animals or for naturally tougher cuts of meat, braising is always a great choice to create tender, succulent meat. Which brings us to dry heat. Dry heat cooking is another umbrella term, and this refers to any cooking technique where heat is transferred to the food directly through contact with hot air, a hot pan, or hot fat, instead of via moisture as a gentle intermediary. Dry heat cooking is typically also high or higher heat cooking and includes techniques such as roasting, grilling, broiling, baking, stir-frying, sautéing, pan-roasting, and deep-frying. Dry, higher heat cooking achieves several things. First, because this kind of cooking can occur at temperatures above 212 degrees, dry heat cooking techniques can achieve browning. In protein foods, the Milliard reaction causes a lovely sear that you get from, say, a skillet-cooked steak. And in starch foods, caramelization concentrates natural or added sugars. In the culinary world, you will hear things like brown is flavor to emphasize the importance of the flavor developments that happen when you get a nice sear or caramelized exterior on your food. Browning is truly fundamental to good flavor building. Second, direct heat concentrates flavor by evaporating excess moisture. There's a big difference in flavor between a roasted potato and a boiled potato. Both are good, both have their place, but the more concentrated flavor that occurs with the roasted potato comes in part from a potato which loses moisture in the cooking process as opposed to a potato which gains moisture in the cooking process. Third, the direct application of heat allows for fat to render in a more targeted way. The best example of this I can think of is, say, a fatty duck breast seared in a cast iron skillet. With a little patience, we can render out a huge amount of the fat in the skin layer of that duck breast without overcooking the meat. If we were to try to boil away the fat in the duck breast, we would simply destroy the meat before the fat had rendered. So dry heat methods of cooking are best when you want to create delicious browning and concentration of flavors and when you want to render fat without overcooking meat. 
So this takes us back to Sandy and her heritage chickens. As you can see, Sandy's question about how to cook a heritage chicken to get tender, succulent meat and crispy brown skin is a bit more complicated than it might appear. We can't rely on a moist heat cooking method alone or a dry heat method alone. Each culinary outcome is the result of different fundamental techniques. Luckily, there are some crossover techniques that can give us a great result without too much extra work. For Sandy, I would recommend a technique called reverse braising. So Sandy, in your situation, what I would do is first spatchcock your birds. This means that you take some heavy scissors and you cut the backbone right out from your chicken. Just use your scissors and cut along each side of the backbone nice and tight. With the backbone removed, you can then open up your chicken flat like a book, push down a little bit on the breast portion at the center, and you'll have a chicken that's fairly flat with the breast portion in the middle and a chicken thigh leg quarter out to each edge. Then what you've got is something that's very flat, uh, very sort of easy to cook and serve, and also where almost all of the skin is on the top of the bird. Season your chicken really well and put it in a greased or buttered oven-proof baking dish or casserole dish. Add enough liquid to come about a quarter of the way up to your chicken in the dish. The more flavorful your liquid is here, the better. You really want to use the addition of moisture as an opportunity to add flavor as well. So don't be afraid to play around with this. You can also add herbs, onions, a little white wine, whatever you like with your chicken. Now cover your casserole dish tightly with aluminum foil and Pop everything in a 350-degree oven for about 40 minutes or until your bird is nice and tender. Now uncover your casserole and turn on the broiler element of your oven. Pat the chicken skin dry on top if you need to, and then put the chicken under the broiler until the skin is nice and crispy and brown. Because this bird is spatchcocked, like I mentioned, nearly all of the skin is going to be up out of the moisture level of the braising liquid, and so it should brown really well for you. This should achieve tender meat, but also the crispy skin your husband's looking for. Now, I'm nearly out of time, but I will mention a couple other options that Sandy could play around with if she wanted to. There are other ways to tenderize meat. Brines and marinades are probably chief among them. Marinades that include yogurt are particularly good at tenderizing tougher cuts of meat. But Sandy, if you aren't really into the whole reverse braising method that I've outlined here, you might want to look at marinating your older birds or brining them in order to keep more moisture in the meat um, before you do a standard high heat roasting method. All right, Sandy, I hope this has given you some good technique options to help achieve the result with your heritage chicken that you're looking for. Friends in TSP land, this has been Erica Strauss for the Expert Council. You can come find me anytime at Northwest Edible Life, nwedible.com. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash nwedible. If you love what I do, you can support me directly at Patreon, patreon.com slash nwedible. Thank you guys very much. I'll be back to chat with you in a couple of weeks. Good stuff. And you've heard me yesterday talk about using kitchen shears to cut the backbone out of a chicken. Yeah, that's why I cut the backbone out of a chicken. I cook, if I cook a whole bird, I always do this. Little tip. You can use different types of cheese, like like a ricotta or something like that. You can make an herbal paste, uh, a lemon zest with herbs, like let's say rosemary, thyme, a little bit of paprika, and some lemon zest, and then some fresh green herb, like let's say flat Italian parsley. You chop that up, and it kind of will get pasty-like. You take the skin of that chicken and lift it up with your hands, and you can get into the breast area and the pockets on the thighs and even down into the drumstick a little bit, 
And you, you, you can push that under that skin and then cook it just like Erica said, and you'll get that flavor into the chicken. The other thing that you can do, and I would go ahead and, and, and de-backbone that chicken. I, I, I can't remember the word she used, but I always just call it butterflying. Butterfly that bird and do a saltwater brine for a couple hours before you cook it. That's going to break down some of that muscle tissue with the salt. It's also going to cause some of the water to be taken into the bird. It's going to give it more moisture. It's going to let it cook a little better. And then again, you can crisp that, that skin at the end. That's another way to do it. The other thing is I find one of the biggest problems that people have with cooking heritage chicken is that everybody want to make Sunday dinner. And what do I mean by that? I mean what we're talking about here, the whole bird. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I find that if you part out a bird and if you'll brine it, you'll, you'll end up with a lot better. Now, you, people say this chicken's tough. Try marinating it because it's not really a brine. I've heard people call it marinating, but you're, you're brining. You're, I mean, you're, you're marinating here, not brining. Marinate, part your chicken out, legs, thighs, etc., and cover it with buttermilk for, for 24 hours and let the buttermilk acid break things down. And make freaking fried, you want crispy, make fried chicken. It's okay once in a while. All of those things will help you out. Or simply, you know, part that bird out. Realize when we cook a whole chicken, we're taking a dark meat and a white meat that actually really prefer to be cooked different ways and we're cooking them the same way. It works out okay, but what I always find is either your 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 thighs a little bit underdone or your breasts a little bit overdone. So by parting out the bird and either brining in a salt brine, salt sugar brine, or doing a buttermilk brine, going back to baking in the oven the same way Erica said, we can control the temperature of each individual cut. And then when they're, you know, like let's say that the breast really is done, we can pull that, let the thighs finish up. Put the breast back in, uh, maybe just a little bit to let it warm a little bit, and then go ahead and pull that lid off, hit that broiler, and get that crisp on the skin. The other option is the grill. If we do a slow grill, and then we flip that bird over if it's whole, or, or move it over direct heat to finish and crisp the skin at the end, that'll work too. Just don't be afraid to take that dadgone bird apart. And I think I've always talked about this, but we haven't done it, and we don't have chickens to process right now. I really need to go to the store and buy a whole chicken. You know what? I think I have one. Or do we cook it? I need to get and do a quick video of how to take apart a chicken. Um, maybe one of how to do what Erica said and one to just take it into parts. Um, because I think it's like a skill that people should have that they don't. And I don't really understand uh, how it's gotten to be that the average person doesn't know how to take a chicken apart. Uh, both either doing boneless cutlass off, off of the breast or leaving the bone in the breast. Um, and it's, it's probably the best value you can get in chicken, no matter whether you're buying, you know, Purdue's mass produced shit or, um, Purdue's actually doing, it's either Purdue or Sanderson, one of those companies, big chicken companies, actually, like now is the largest producer of free range organic chicken in the country. It's almost like they're paying attention. So whether it's, you know, store bought organic or free range, uh, or, You know, really expensive pastured bird that you're either, it's expensive because you have your time and, and, and hard into it, or you're buying it for somebody or a cold bird. Like, no matter what you're doing, knowing how to take that bird apart is probably the best bang for the buck you can get in chicken. Because there's so much you can do now with it. So, 
And remember, we got Bill Tong for breakfast coming, the cooking show. David and I talked uh, this this week, and he's been really run ragged this week, and he's just beat. So we're probably going to film the inaugural episode of Bill Tong for breakfast next week, and that means probably be the week after that will come out. So if you want to be kept apprised of uh, Bill Tong for breakfast, go to BillTongForBreakfast.com, fill out the form there, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and when we get rolling, you'll know it. Anyway... Uh, next, I have a question for Patrick Warman on different sharpness levels for different cutting tools. Hey guys, it's Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Dean. Dean writes, Hello, I'm wondering if there's an objective measurement on measurement for how sharp a knife, axe, sheath, etc. has become and if the method of determining the sharpness is easy, available, easily available to the average Joe. Background. Like many modern survivalists, I have various pocket, serrated bread knife, skinning, hunting, kitchen knives, a meat cleaver, and machetes along with hatchets, axes, size, and who knows what else, that all need to be kept sharp. However, I doubt my axe needs to be as sharp as my boning knife, and it got me wondering if there was a good way to know, really know, if the edge on the blade is optimal for the task that it was designed to perform. Thank you for the advice, Dean. Thanks for the question, Dean. Uh, good question. If you ask five different makers the same question, you're going to get five different answers. You can get a knife sharp at almost any angle. I have cut myself on the spine of knives before that were that had a crisp 90 degree edge. I was grinding away and felt something kind of my, like the blade was getting hot and looked down and it was actually the spine of the knife was cutting into my hand. It's kind of surprising when you look down and you know you feel you feel like your hands getting warm and you look down and you see blood on your fingers. So the angle of the the angle that you choose, whether it be a an axe or a fillet knife, the angle is going to determine how tough that edge is. But my axe, my hatchet, my cleaver, my skinning knife, all of them will shave hair, and that really is to me a good indication of. Whether or not whether or not your knife needs to be sharpened, if uh, if your hatchet or your your uh, fillet knife won't cut hair off your arm, then I like to touch it up. Everybody has different opinions or different preferences on what they consider sharp. I know guys that have cleaned two, three elk and was happy with the way that it was cutting. I know from experience that I am going to touch up my blade two or three times in the process of cleaning an animal, a deer or elk. Or um, Recently we butchered our bull, and I'll tell you what, you get to cleaning an animal like that, it doesn't matter if you have a sharp edge, it's, it's going to be a workout. So I personally prefer a pretty high level of sharpness on anything that I do. You may, you yourself may not be as picky as um, I am about how sharp you want your knife to be. 
Uh, in fact, I had one gentleman tell me that my knives were too sharp. And um, he was cleaning a deer and had hair everywhere. He wasn't used to having a knife that sharp. So it really is about getting used to what you prefer and getting used to using that tool in the condition that it's in. Um, and this is going to come with experience. It depends on the tool, it depends on the steel, and it depends on the user. And that's one of the wonderful things about knowing how to sharpen your knife yourself is you can customize that knife or that tool to your preferences. Um, it's no different than cooking your own food, working on your own vehicle. Uh, mechanics all have different opinions on how they like their vehicles to run, uh, how they like things done, and when you can do that work yourself, you can tailor your knives or your tools to where you like them. So, I hope that answers your question. Um, if you want to learn more about sharpening and about how, how to know how sharp something is, be sure to pick up a copy of Beyond Razor Sharp, where I cover all that you need to know about how to sharpen a knife. Um, if you have any other questions, feel free to email me, patrick at mtknives.net, and I will do my best to help you uh, as much as I can. So, once again, thank you very much for your question. This has been Patrick with mtknives.net. Have a great day, and stay sharp. Great stuff, as always, from Patrick. Next up, I have a question on taxation and reducing tax footprint and dealing with being temporarily in a higher tax bracket during international travel for John Pugliano. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question comes from Maria, and Maria asks, What advice would you have for someone that will be temporarily in a high tax bracket? Here are the details. Maria and her spouse are going to be working overseas on a one-year contract. They're going to find themselves in a much higher tax bracket than they would normally be in. And for some reason, she doesn't mention why, but for some reason, they're ineligible for the overseas tax exemption. And so Maria is looking for ways to reduce her tax liability while she's overseas and looking for suggestions other than, you know, just maxing out her retirement contributions. And then she goes on to say, that her and her husband do plan to start a business on their property. And they were wondering if it would be advantageous to start that business while they're in this higher tax bracket because they anticipate running losses over the first couple years as they build the business anyways. Now, of course, I need to preface whatever I'm going to say here by encouraging Maria to talk to a professional, talk to a CPA. Don't just get your tax advice from some guy like me on a podcast. The laws are very complicated, they can be very convoluted, and the last thing you want to do is get crossways with the IRS. So definitely talk to a professional, but let me give you some of my thoughts and hopefully get you pointed in the right direction. First off, in terms of finding yourself in temporarily a high tax bracket, unfortunately there are not a whole lot of good answers for that. You may find that your tax situation is very unfair, that you've not only been bumped up into higher brackets, but also things like the alternative minimum tax have kicked in and it makes you ineligible for deductions that you thought you were going to receive. 
You know, all these bad things can happen, and so it's good that you're thinking about it now so you can plan ahead accordingly, which may be nothing more than just making sure that you're having the right amount of money deducted and withheld so you don't find yourself in a situation where you can't pay your taxes when they're due. The tough situation that you're going to find yourself in is that more and more itemized tax deductions are being taken away. For example, just this year alone in the new tax bill that's come out, They've taken away the deductibility of the moving deduction. My understanding is is that now you can only deduct your moving expenses if you're active duty military. And to me, that's a real travesty because I think the tax code should not penalize success or should not penalize people that are making wise economic decisions. And, you know, you ask yourself, well, why do most people move? Well, in most cases, even if you're just moving for retirement, I would say that people only move when they think they're improving their economic situation. They're moving to take a better job, or they're moving to be closer to their work, or they're moving to get out of a high-cost area to a low-cost area. So people generally choose to move to improve their economic condition. And I don't think the tax code should penalize that. In fact, I think it should incentivize it because that not only helps the individual, it helps the overall economy. So I'm sorry to see the moving expense going away. But, you know, the people in Washington don't care what I think. So, Maria, when it comes to personal deductions on your tax form, you may find that you're really between a rock and a hard place. Again, you want to talk to a professional, but perhaps you may be able to deduct things that are costing you more money as a result to taking this temporary assignment and being overseas. That might mean things like the added cost of living expenses or services that you're required to have that are going to cost you more overseas than they would if you were living in the U.S. under your regular job. And this really gets into a gray area. It would have to be perhaps on some type of a per diem basis, and it may or may not be able to include things like extra costs for health insurance or out-of-pocket expense for maintaining your home or your property in the U.S. You know, a lot of this is very much situation-based because it depends on what type of a contract or an employment situation that you have with your overseas employer. So, for example, are you being paid simply as an employee or are you on a 1099? Are you being paid as a contract worker? You really need to define your work status. And if you're not being compensated directly as an employee you may be able to consider this time overseas as self-employment, you know, as a freelancer, as a contractor, and, you know, doing business as or LLC yourself, something like that. And to me, that would be the easiest and the best and the most appropriate way to look for legitimate business expenses to help you reduce your overall tax burden. And that really gets into your next question, which is should you be starting your business, you know, sooner rather than later so that you can start taking advantage of some of these startup costs for your business? And yeah, I really do think you're thinking along the right lines. Again, talk to a CPA because there are not only special categorizations of what things need to be called, but in some cases there are limits of what can be deducted under those categories. And you just want to make sure that you're calling everything the proper name and that you're documenting it properly. But absolutely, if you're going to start a business anyways, I think it's always better to start it sooner rather than later. And while I would never encourage anybody to start a business simply to get a tax advantage, what I would say is that one of the great things about having your own business is the fact that you can write off legitimate business expenses. And that's the real key here. Remember, you don't ever want to get sideways with the IRS. You want to make sure that everything's above board, that it's documented, that it's done properly. 
But having said that, you also want to make sure you're taking full effect of all the legal tax advantages that are there for you as an entrepreneur. And obviously, since you're starting a business, one of the big initial expenses you're going to have is the startup costs. And you're going to have that one way or the other, whether you're overseas or in the States. And those are things like your legal fees, filing your paperwork to get your LLC, getting professional advice from your CPA and your attorney, starting your website, and doing the other things that you need to create, uh, you know, your branding. Those are all things you're going to have to do one way or the other. And so I would think while you're overseas, it would be wise to start doing those things. And then obviously, if they're appropriate business expenses, then of course, taking those deductions. One thing I have to add here too is if you start trying to pay yourself a salary or have operational costs like health insurance or paying for utilities or different things of that nature, then your business has to be functional. It isn't a matter of you're just thinking about what you're going to do for your business. You know, it's going beyond the startup costs and actually deducting the costs that are associated for running your business. But to do that, you have to be running the business. And remember, running the business doesn't mean you're necessarily profitable. It just means that you're honestly engaged in the activity of trying to pursue a profit, right? You may not be profitable, but you're engaged in meaningful activities that are creating some type of a product or service in an attempt to create a cash stream and revenue. So if you're just sitting on your duff doing nothing, no, that's not creating a business. But if you're marketing and building a website and writing a blog and putting together your supply chain and making an effort to contract and trying to engage customers to make a sale, then that's considered a business, even if that sale isn't profitable or even if the sale isn't attained. So as long as you're actively engaged in operating this business, you can potentially take off your home office deduction, which would be writing off a portion of your living space that you're using exclusively to store your products or to use as an office where you make your phone calls or do your website from. And then, of course, because you're communicating and marketing, well, perhaps you can write off a portion of your Internet service or your cell phone bill. And then definitely you would have the ability to write off capital purchases. And I think this really would be the key area where you can probably find the largest deductions. Now, again, you want to talk to your CPA, but what you're looking at is the Section 179 deductions. And under the new tax code, as a small business, you would be able to, in the first year, fully write off, fully depreciate capital equipment purchases up to something like $1 million. Now, I know, you know, what you're talking about is going to be nowhere near that. So there's probably a lot of leeway here where you can find legitimate capital business expenses that can be written off as you're starting up and phasing into your new business. And this is everything from computers to software to tools or equipment or even, you know, physical real estate property that is needed to operate your business. Now, again, this is important because when it comes to making these capital purchases, this gets back into where I was talking about actively running your business. You can't buy like a tractor and having it sit in storage on a, a shed, you know, on your property back in the States while you're overseas. That would not be considered a capital expense because it has to be in use. And it doesn't have to be in use by you, right? It could be an agent of yours, right? The agent could be your father-in-law, but somebody has to actively be using that equipment. So if you buy a computer that can't be sitting in storage somewhere, you have to physically be using that computer in the pursuit of your business. I think the Section 179 deduction is where you're going to find the most bang for your buck to come up with legitimate business expenses, assuming that you are starting that business and actively running it. 
Maria, thanks for your question, and good luck to you and your husband, not only in your overseas pursuits, but really specifically in starting and building that business. I think that as modern-day survivalists, there's probably nothing more important to advancing the cause of our own personal liberty and our own self-sustainability than creating our own small businesses. So good luck to you guys. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Um I'll, I'll just throw a few things in that. Probably the number one reason that they wouldn't be eligible for the overseas tax exemption is, and this is something I don't think a lot of people know about this, if I go to Spain and I take a job in Spain and I'm there for six months and I uh, live in Spain for six consecutive months and I live and work in Spain and I get paid in Spain and it's my money and I'm, you know, and there's, I think it's $110,000 or something like that a year that falls under this exemption. And I come back to the United States after 180 days. I, I don't qualify for any exemption whatsoever. None. In the, the totality of the tax year, I have to reside in the country where I'm doing business and, and earning an income for a minimum of 330 days within a tax year. And that cannot split. So if you ever find yourself in a situation, one of the ways you can mitigate that, if it's going to be a temporary contract thing, is to say, I need at least 330 days of residency, and I can't split that between two tax years. So what I'm saying is, let's say that you went there on August 1st, and then we counted 330 days ahead, and you end up somewhere like July. You don't get the exemption even though you were there for 330 days because that's how greedy Uncle Scam is. So you would want to make some sort of a deal with the entity that was employing you um, to possibly even reduce the income and spread it out over a long period of time and maybe take your ass and extend a vacation while you're there. In other words, if they were going to pay you 250 grand. It would almost be better if they just paid you less and had you get paid on a retainer in case they needed you for another few months and you kind of hung out. Some people may be open to doing that. I also want to reiterate what John, John said. Tax attorney and CPA. Tax attorney and CPA. You want both when you get into making higher level decisions. And the best thing you can find is a CPA that is a tax attorney. That's, that's, That's the, the, the golden goose right there. We have one, and he's pretty badass, and he's worth his weight in gold to me. Next up, I have a question for Mike and Sue LaPreeze on um, making sure if you're homeschooling that your kids are going to be able to get their happy little butts into college if that's what they want to do. This is Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, TSP community. Hi, Jack. Today we have an anonymous letter. How do you find the absolute base bare minimum requirements to get into any college, community or otherwise? I mean from state minimum requirements as well as the individual institution. Background. My wife homeschools our three clones. I tutor for the gaps in confidence. Our eldest is nearing high school and my wife is extremely worried about doing the children a disservice by not meeting some mystical requirements. This is our typical cycle of are we doing right by our kids, but I'm afraid it's guiding us into useless curriculum territory. My wife wants to model government school curriculum, yet I feel it would be a waste of time. We live in Texas, by the way, and are focusing on Texas rules, if any exist at any meaningful level. 
So we totally understand the worrying part. We worried about the first 10 years, but it's like a good marriage. You got to get past that first 10 years to get your groove in. So there's two questions here today. We have the college entrance question and the curriculum question. So the college entrance question is pretty simple. Yeah, college entrance. So we've got some experience with that. We've got some kids that have gone that path. Uh, community college um, at 18. Uh, you can uh, test, and the only test, it's a placement test, so it determines your level of, of uh, within the community college, and they test only on math and writing. So, And if you're 18, there are remedial courses at the community college that start at the fifth grade level. So think about that. You, take, uh, you graduate from high school, you take a state test, and then you take the entrance test to the community college to determine your at, and there are some people that are going to be at the fifth grade. So what is that telling you? Is They want your money. Now, if your child is under 18 years old, though, there, there are rules. So a 15-year-old who is going to take the placement test for a community college has to place into the college level for math and writing if they're not 18 years old. So yeah. anybody under 18 years old, if you're taking the placement test, you have to place at the college level. And so what they really want is your money. Uh, yes, if, well, if you're after you're 18, they'll, they'll get you to say you can get in. They're just going to determine. So after you're 18, you're taking that placement test not to enter community college, but to determine where you begin in terms of classes. Right, just about everybody can get in. Yes. Right. And, so, and there's a distinction between community college, going to a community college, or going to, say, the University of Texas or Texas A&M. Yeah, and that's uh, one of those places where you have to know who your kid is. And what they're looking for. Yes, yeah, so we've got a real close friends of ours. Uh, they have um, two sons, particularly. We'll talk about their two eldest sons. Uh, ben went to um, community college after finishing homeschooling. He went to community college for two years and then went on to Texas A&M. So he went to Texas A&M and got a degree in uh, meteorology. And then during his senior year of college, determined that he wanted to fly for the military, so he got into the Navy, and he's now a naval aviator. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Flying, and, and he can't believe that he's getting paid for what he's doing. He's loving it. The next son, Joe, uh, went to community college for a shorter period of time. He went specifically for uh, auto mechanics. Um, he had done some work with, with a, a friend of theirs before he had finished high school and liked mechanics and went to community college for auto mechanics. And Joe is doing fantastic and has a passion for mechanics. He loves what he does. Mm-hmm. He's married. He owns a house. He's got a wife. They're having they're, a baby. They're having their first baby. And it's, this is just a, a little quick aside. So Joe um, does a uh, side hustle. He does work on cars in, in his driveway. Uh, and his wife was complaining that there are extra cars besides theirs in their driveway. And Joe went into the other room with her, and he took out an envelope and started counting out money. And he said, this is the money that I'm making for these cars being in the driveway. And she smiled and went and made supper. Yeah. So doing right by your kids is a good question for parents to ask themselves continually. You should ask yourself that on a pretty regular basis, um, evaluating what you're doing and is it working for each of your children. So the question you have to ask here, though, is what is the disservice that you feel like you're doing? Not helping your kids to discover and develop their gift and talent, that's the disservice. Not 
are they ready for college? But finding out who they are. So being in the middle of a class of a thousand at a government school, I think that's a disservice because you're kind of this nameless middle person and not important. Well, it doesn't, it, it, it ranks you, right? Mm-hmm. Amongst your classmates, it gives you a rank. It doesn't tell you anything about yourself. Right. It doesn't tell you who you are. Yeah. Right. Uh, and along that disservice, um, Part of that disservice is are, are the children thinking that they're all the same? And for us, homeschooling is, um, for us, it's a lifestyle design. So we homeschool not out of fear. We don't fear about our kids being um, in a place where they're going to be harassed, although... Or shot. Or shot. We, our decision wasn't based on fear at all. It was out of a lifestyle design. And I think for us, the... Service, not the disservice, but the service that we're providing our children is to enrich our children's lives. So apart from the curriculum, which studying math and writing, and of course history and English and science, we do all those things, but also our lifestyle allows us to take our children on adventures uh, when everybody else is going to the government buildings, uh, you know, the, the government detention centers, we go on adventures. We take weeks. Uh, where yeah, it's we never off. hard for you to get vacation time when we ask. No, it's not hard yeah. for me to get vacation time. You're not competing with spring break and, and Christmas break and all, and all that. that. Yes. Yeah. So when we're going on vacation, I'm not competing with those. And we get to go on great adventures. We can go to a state park for 10 days from a Friday to the, to the following Sunday and be in a state park with a handful of other people where we have the whole place to ourselves. So it's really easy to look at what you're missing out on and what you're not doing that everybody else is doing. But when you think about the government school's curriculum, that's not their focus. That changes constantly. The standard state tests change. All of that is in this constant change because people are trying to make more money off the system. The real focus of the government schools is classroom management and social engineering. And I can tell you, the years we've been homeschooling, we have gotten so many free work Books and textbooks from the government school teachers where they find this pile of books that are being thrown in the trash. One time we filled up our Azusu, what was that? The little Azusu rodeo. rodeo. We filled it up with so many books. My son, who was sitting in the front seat with me, had books on his lap. We had an entire car full of books that we went and shared with homeschoolers. So they're not about the curriculum. So then the next question is, uh, do you want to do government school at home? And what would be the purpose of doing that? So what we look at is curriculum. And although we get workbooks and textbooks from public schools when they give them away, those are generally math books. I would say. Yeah, and so we leave them in the car, and the kids use them when we're driving around, usually like a grade under where they're at. So it's fairly simple, but they're working on their skills, and I think it's fun. And so you have that, and, and the curriculum that we get that is by and for homeschoolers leads to conversations and discovery. It's really family-centered stuff. So, like, for example, this week we're reading Paddle to the Sea because we're studying French-Canadians, getting ready for the French and Indian War. Michael's French-Canadian, so it's really cute when he reads it because... He leaves his R's out. but um, So then it's a springboard for our lots of fun other things where we looked up vlogging and watched a 1930s video 
actual video footage of running logs down the river, which goes along with the book. And we looked at Google Maps on where the story takes place. And we also are playing Ticket to Ride, Rails and Sails. So it's like, oh, all these these places that we're reading about in the story are on our game. It and it's, it all ties in together and it creates a conversation that's fabulous. And just leads to the love of learning. Our kids love all those different pieces. Uh, and we tie it all in with the games. And so in the book talks about Duluth and talks about Sault Ste. Marie. And then we watch it on the Google map or we watch the video and then we play the games that have all those. They love it. So it's, it's, A. It's, it's, A, it's really important <laughs> that it's not just how to learn. And I think that's what government schools do to some extent, is teach you how to, how to learn, learn, what to learn. But what we want to remind you is that it's instilling the love of learning. One of the key reasons why we love listening to Jack, we love listening to TSP, is because Jack loves to learn, and he's a great teacher, and he teaches with passion that causes us to love to listen. Right, and then he gathers other people, the experts who are like, they love their thing. And so, I like it's great. Yeah, it is great. So I would say to Anonymous, um, study. I don't want to study. Um, think about the things that you need for college: are math and writing. But what you really, your kids really need is the inst- installation of a love of learning. Yeah. And I think that's it. The, the, I think you've got. It. I don't think you need to worry. Yeah. Enjoy. Enjoy. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com for the Expert Council. Thanks, Jack. All right, great stuff from Mike and Sue as always. Guys, I'll tell you what, they are great, and uh, I'm out of questions for them. I don't get a ton of questions for these guys. Um, I think you could ask them not just direct homeschooling questions, parenting questions, project questions for kids, things like that. These guys are fantastic. They're an incredible resource. Let's make sure that we're utilizing them. Okay, my question for today's show is the anchor. Uh, comes from Ben, and Ben says, What are good alternatives to the ARs? Hey, Jack, I hope you're well. As a gun control debate gets worse, what might be a good alternative gun to AR-15s? Don't stone me for heresy, but if I'm going to invest in a firearm and a stupid law comes through it bans ARs or semi-automatic rifles, what would be worth having instead? Please don't rip me a new one. I'm trying to read the tea leaves and invest wisely. Thanks for all you do. Sincerely, Ben. This is really two different questions. One question is, if I'm going to buy a gun and it's not going to be AR-15, I want it to do as much as the AR-15 does, what can I buy? And I'll try to take that on. And it's also like, how do I mitigate against future regulations? Now, I'm going to give a disclaimer here that I should not have to give, but the experience has taught me that I have to give it. Otherwise, there will be this sound. You know what that sound is? That's angry keystrokes. I read emails sometimes and I can hear. Because these are not things I'm advocating when I start talking about what government might do. I know this is ridiculous that I have to do this, but God knows I have to. These are things I think government may do rather than an outright ban. So let's start there. First of all, I do not think you will see a day like in Australia where they say not only are these weapons now banned, those of you who own them have until X day to turn them in. I I, I don't see that being the case. Um, This is one thing we have going for us. The sheer number of these guns. 
They are not going to be able to get a law through that requires the surrender of them without paying fair market value for them, and they don't have money. I, see, that's something no other country that's ever done this has ever had to contend with, the sheer volume of them in possession and a somewhat unwilling population who owns them to give them back. And there's a lot of things you can take from people rather easily, but guns are not one of them because guns have the ability to defend one's right to keep it. So the way that you would want to, you would possibly see this going is exactly what happened during the assault weapons ban under Bill Clinton. These weapons can no longer be sold, but there'd be, have to be some sort of grandfathering for all the ones that exist and are already in legal possession that nobody's done anything illegal with. Now, transferability of those, I don't know. This is actually what I think will eventually happen. And again, if you send me an angry email because of this, I'm not even going to read it. As soon as I realize this what it's about, I will delete it because you're an idiot because I'm not advocating this. I think what we may see in the future is a system for semi-auto, and I know it's not the right word. It's the word they will use, assault weapons to require something akin to a federal tax stamp that you already have to get for a Class 3 or a suppressor or something like that. It probably won't be exactly the same. God knows it would have to be streamlined. It is a way to create a gun license and circumvent the issue with the Second Amendment for government. If they outright ban these guns, they are going to face challenges that they might very well lose And it could cost them a lot if they lose it. This is what was done initially with federal tax stamps. And $200 may not sound like a huge amount of money to own a machine gun, but when that law went into effect, it was a lot of money. More akin to, let's say, $5,000 today. Okay? One power our government has that's absolutely, fundamentally unquestionable under our Constitution, whether you like it or not, is the power to impose a tax. And they could come up with a tax per weapon or a tax to be able to purchase weapons of this classification. And you have to apply for it, and then it's a tax. So it doesn't infringe your rights. I know you think it does, and I agree with you, but according to our Constitution and Supreme Court precedent, the government has the power to tax, and it does not interfere with your rights. So it's very possible that they may at some point say, oh, there are certain classes of weapons they require a tax stamp you have to apply for, and God, the bottleneck could be huge. And that that would also be the case if you want to transfer a weapon from one person to another rather than just your, your standard federal background check through a dealer, even if they close the private, because they would definitely close private sales then. Be a different class of weapon. And they could say all semi-autos. I'm not worried about this right now. We've got plenty of time to figure out what to do if that, that world comes. If I wanted to buy an AR right now, I would go out and buy an AR. Let's talk about some other things before we get into some alternatives to the AR um, that you, you might want to do right now. Something I flirted with, and because I like my money, and I know if you make it easier for me to buy guns, I'll spend more money, and I'll have less money and more guns. Uh, but I may go ahead and do now is a CNR federal firearms license. See, if you are a licensed firearms uh, dealer, basically, as a CNR. Although you're not, it's not a dealer's license. You're a licensed firearms collector. What are Curo and Relics? Where they're Curo and Relics. They are considered guns that are considered collectibles. What a lot of people don't realize is a lot of semi-automatic military-grade weapons are now CNR, um, like SKSs. 
there's a ton of stuff that's actually really great guns. Semi-auto, bolt-action, handguns that all fall under CNR. Well, the CNR, you act as your own FFL. Now, you cannot sell the gun to someone else using your CNR federal license, even if it's a CNR. And you have to maintain records of what you buy. But let's say they pass some sort of a, a law like this. Well, I mean, all of these guns fall under my federal firearms license as a collector. That might be a real good defensive move to take right now. In fact, I think I've just talked myself into finally getting off my ass and getting my CNR license. But you shouldn't have to. Yeah, I know, but I do, so I'm gonna. Just like I shouldn't have to pay taxes on my freaking income and property, but since I don't want to go to a place that's like really gray with a bunch of bars in front of my face and people I don't want to be with and eat gray bologna for, for, for lunch, I go ahead and do that. Next, if I wanted an AR and I didn't have one, I'd go buy one right now. I, assuming I'm not like using the kids' college money for it or something, I'm telling you, they're not going to be able to take all these guns back. They may stop the sale of them, and assuming there's still some mechanism for transferability, that will make the value of them not go down but go up because it will put a limitation on the supply. Again, I don't think most people that are calling for this have any understanding of the sheer volume of semi-automatic rifles in various forms, be they AKs, ARs, uh, F uh, FALs. I, don't, I mean, I don't think they have any idea the number. Because they don't know anything about guns. And they don't understand the magnitude of, like, you're just not going to be able to take these away. So, number one, that's what I would do. Number two, if I wanted to buy something other than an AR-15 that was as, as much like the AR-15 as I could get my hands on, but yet looked nothing like it and be considered a sporting rifle, I would go buy a Ruger Mini-14. I have a link in the show notes to a video by a guy I really like on YouTube. Uh, he has a video called Eight Reasons the Mini-14 is Better Than the AR-15. Before anybody out there shits your pants with anger, he also has a video called Eight Reasons the AR-15 is Better Than the Mini-14. And if he had to pick between the two, he would side with the AR. But there are some things the Ruger does better, especially out of the box, without spending a lot of money to make it better. And I think the Ruger Mini-14 is a damn fine gun. In his video, he mentions the problems with accuracy in the uh, Mini-14 and some of the things that Ruger's done in the last, like, eight years to improve accuracy. However, I have to say, I've shot Mini-14s and shot one-inch groups at 100 yards, and I don't know what the hell you want out of any gun, if that's not good enough. Um, it, it's a fantastic gun. It is not as quick on magazine changes and things like that. It doesn't quite have the same rate of fire, but it's pretty damn good. If you remember, it was the preferred weapon of the A-Team in the 1980s, and that was probably to take away a little bit from the military look of things, and that was a, probably a decision that the creators of that show or the producers of that show made. But it would be my first choice. Um, in fact, it's one of those things, I don't own one, and I often ask myself, why don't you own one of these? You just should have one. So that's... That's one thing I would look at. And if you really want to mitigate things, I would go with a Woodstock version. Not just because it's less likely to be banned, because that's just stupid. But one of the things that we need to start realizing, if any type of shit happens, even if we have loopholes that we can operate under and own our guns and keep our guns and not be in violation of federal law, that we might make decisions at certain points where we're going somewhere with a gun 
to use a gun that doesn't look like one of the scary guns, so it's less likely some idiot will call and say we're doing something we're not supposed to do just to avoid the contact with law enforcement, even if we're right. And I'm not talking about being f afraid. I'm, I'm talking about, like, yeah, just the where I'm going this time, it's likely that somebody would see me and maybe make some phone calls and maybe better take gun A than gun B. And I think the Ruger in a Woodstock does not look scary, which is why... The gun grabbers don't even get it. Now, understand this. If they pass one of these laws, that freaking gun is going to be banned too. They are not just going to ban AR-15s and AK-47s. The, the proposed bans right now cover almost anything semi-automatic, including handguns, which also ain't going to happen. But they're, and, and one of the things they keep wanting to go after is magazines. If you want high-capacity magazines, go get some now. Now, I think there might be some panic buying around right now, and I don't think really it's it's likely to happen anytime soon. Um, I think there's Democrats that won't do this right now because they fear not getting reelected. This is it is this is not a slam dunk with public opinion. Just because the whiny, mousy mouth idiots are the ones they put on TV, the majority of Americans do not support this. And politicians want to stay in, 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 in place. And with heavy Republican majority in the House that I don't see going away this next election unless something weird happens, this just isn't going to – I don't care what Trump says. And I would also preface this. Some of the shit Trump says may be to moderate his stance in regard to swing voters. It's easy to say you do something when you know you ain't going to get a chance to do it. I'm not making excuses for the man. I'm just saying he's switched on to becoming a politician pretty quick. And he's a pretty smart guy. And uh, so just understand that. But the Ruger Mini 14, it's about the only thing that I would look at as a semi-auto rifle and compared to the AR-15 that you can buy. Um, if you're willing to step up in caliber, more into the world of hunting, uh, I would look at something like the Bernelli R1, um, the Remington 750, or the Browning Bar. Uh, and there's a lot of different options through all of that. The Browning Bar uh, is probably, out of all of them, the best. And it also is available with something called the Boss System. And the Boss System is basically a muzzle brake system that does a couple things. One, it lets you kind of fine-tune your barrel harmonics and dial in the accuracy a little bit better, but also greatly reduces recoil. And that gun is available all the way down to a .243 and all the way up to a .338 Magnum. That's a pretty broad range, and it is not what the AR-15 is, but in some ways it's a hell of a lot more. And it's a great sporting gun, and it's still semi-automatic. And if any types of semi-auto rifles escaped this type of a ban, if it ever occurs, something like the Browning Bar, which clearly is a hunting rifle, would be the most likely to get past it. It does. There's not even stuff to make it look like a, 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 a you know a military style weapon. Which I know all the technicals here are the same. I'm just trying to point out the loopholes that may exist in the future. The Bernelli R1 is great. Uh, it's, a, it's a fine gun. The Remington 750 is the seven uh, or, or 7500. I think there was also another version of it, but the 750 is the last one they made which is basically the partner to the 760 series. So the 760 series, I think they now call it the 7600 series. Remington's Hunting Center Fire 243 up to, I believe, 35 Remington is what they, not 35, I mean 35 Whalen pump. And they made the 750 in a semi-auto version. This gun has a reputation for being a jam -o -matic. You pick up one, 
works flawlessly. You pick up another one, it has consistent jams. If you go online to forums, I can't get into it in this episode, but there's a couple little things you can do with the 750 that fixes this problem. And Remington doesn't make it anymore. They actually went to making an AR-style sporting rifle and stopped making the 750 when they did, instead of fixing this problem, which gave it a bad name. This is the good news. Since the 750 and its variants have a bad reputation, they're often sold really cheap. But for you know 30 minutes of work and a little bit of research to figure out what to do, it can become very reliable. So that would be another one. But again, we're way above the 223. Kind of coming back down to smaller calibers, having nowhere near the range of the AR, staying with semi-autos, um, you could look at something like the M1 carbine. And a lot of people think the M1 carbine is really anemic. Well, that's because it was judged against the, the M1 Garand in combat in World War II. You got a little bitty 110 grain 30 cal round, and you got a great big 150 grain 30 cal round, and that one's cooking off at about 2,800 feet per second. So yeah, when you were shooting a Nazi, it made a big difference. The M1 carbine, with that 30 carbine round, is a damn deadly round. It works. Uh, with with, with semi-jacketed uh, semi uh, rounds, it's actually a reasonable deer round. People go, no, no. Okay, well, hold on. The 30 carbine has as much energy at 100 yards as a three fifty seven Magnum out of a revolver has at the muzzle. You, I mean, you let that sink in for a second. This is a good little gun. Um, there's lots of them out there. Lots of different people made them. There's surplus ones available, etc. I think the most common company making them new today is Auto Ordnance. And I have a link where you can find out more about them on, uh, I think Cheaper Than Dirt is where I found them. Or maybe it was, uh, yeah, it was Cheaper Than Dirt. Uh, and another gun you can look at that's a great semi-auto, pistol caliber gun. Doesn't It's not made anymore, but there's lots of them out there. It was made in 9mm and 45 ACP is the Marlin Camp Carbine. I love this little gun. My brother-in-law has one in 45. Freaking 45s are hard to find. And I know sooner or later, he's going to break down and sell it to me. I know he is. I've been working on him for freaking almost 20 years. Sooner or later, I'm going to win that battle. Because this basically like having a little Thompson submachine gun in semi-auto, man. It, it's, it's pretty badass. So I like that gun as well. If you wanted an AR-style gun that wasn't semi-auto, a company called Troy Industries makes one that looks just like an AR-15, but it's pump. So it's not semi-auto. Now, why would you want that? Well, I think mostly they sell into countries now where pump rifles are legal, but semi-autos are illegal, and people want the AR style. I don't know how valuable that would be, but it's the only pump action 223 that I know of, and the, the closest thing to a semi-auto that isn't to me is a pump. There's also lever actions in 223. Uh, the BLR, or Browning Lever Action Rifles, available in 223. So these are all different options that you can consider. But I'll, I'll leave it on this. And again, disclaimer, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have what we want. But I think people do get hung up on wanting, well, I want an AR-15. Well, why? I don't know, because I want one. Okay, fine, go get one. But my, my, my question generally is, when somebody's wanting to get a gun, what do you want to do with it? Because the AR-15 is a great gun, and it does a lot of things really well. And contrary to what the left will say, there are plenty of people that live in states where they're legal for hunting that hunt with AR-15s and AR-10s. My buddy JR shot a beautiful elk a couple years ago with an AR-10 and 308. It was nice enough to bring me a big old hunk of, uh, of, of sausage from it. It was really good, too. 
Um, I've shot deer with 223. Don't tell me it doesn't work. I've seen it. Uh, but is the AR-15 the best round for a deer hunter? Or the best r platform for a deer hunter? And the answer is probably not. Probably not. I'd say for for speed of, of follow-up shooting, leave reactions too, man. I, I know I mentioned that already, but I mean, I've got a Marlin 1895 and .44 Magnum. And I can put eight, nine rounds out of that thing, and you will think somebody's shooting a semi-auto. And I'm pretty damn accurate at that kind of rate of fire as well. So that gun in, in, in the hands of someone, let's say, in the northeastern woods, is a much better gun for their deer hunting, because first of all, it's legal to hunt deer with. You know, what do you want to do? If you want a plinking gun, AR-15s are great for kind of, if you got a place you can shoot, But that M1 carbine is also a great plinker. So are the Marlin Camp carbines. For that matter, so are the freaking High Point carbines, though they've gone so far to try to appease their market. They look like AR-15s now would probably come under the same ban. They're nowhere near as good, and I think they went from being like a really solid value to like actually costing enough now that you might be able to do better somewhere else. But, but ask yourself, what do I want a gun for? What do I want it for? And if it's, you know, I want a rifle carbine for self-defense, then the AR-15 is the best gun for that. But if it's, I, you know, I want a gun to go out and plink with, then, you know, moving down to like a 22 might be a really good thing. If you want to go out and varmint hunt, the 223 is a damn good varmint round. But honestly, if you're going to be driving around talking to farmers and shooting groundhogs, A bolt-action rifle with a really good scope is better for the job and less likely to create contacts with law enforcement. So I think we should all have what we want. We should all buy what we want, and we should do so without fear. But I don't think we should do it out of spite either, if that makes sense. And I'm telling you, I think one of the smartest things that we can do to preserve our individual rights, even if the collective loses some rights, is that CNR license. Again, you're looking at the majority of SKSs are qualified under CNR. Not all of them, but the majority of them. And that's not the greatest gun in the world, but it's, uh, it's, I have a few and I'm not getting rid of them. Anyway, with that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed taking that ride with me today. I want to remind you one of the ways you can help support us that is positively painless and doesn't really cost you anything, even just maybe a little bit, a couple seconds of your time, is if you're going to buy something online, go to tspaz.com first. You can take a look at all our reviews and stuff like that. And as long as you go through tspaz.com when you shop online, you'll help support the Survival Podcast from the work that we do, no matter what you buy. Now, the item that I have reviewed for you today is a awesome book. It's called Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Shockey. If you said to me, remember I talked recently about the herbal book, and I said if you tried one book, you could buy an herbal medicine, it would be the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook. If you told me that I could only have one book on fermented vegetables and making ferments, it would be Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Shockey. It's just an outstanding book. Here's some of the stuff that's in this book that you can learn how to make. Um, garlic skate paste. That's freaking awesome. Fermented horseradish. You know that white creamy crap? You'll never go near it again. Fermented basil paste. Fermented cherry bombs made with cherry tomatoes. Gardening season's coming up. How many of those damn things do you end up with you don't know what to do with? 
How about celery mint salad, fresh fennel kraut, and tomatillo salsa? Fermenting your vegetables is one of the greatest things you can do to improve their longevity and improve your health and to diversify what you're eating. It's just, it's just a fantastic way um, to, to expand your culinary horizon. And it's, it, it's damn easy. It's really, really easy. They have a Kindle version that's $2.50. That's how cheap it is. But this is one of those books that I would really recommend getting the hard copy because it's really, it's not a cookbook, but it's kind of like a cookbook. It's something I think if you have a place in your kitchen where you keep cookbooks and stuff like that, you'll probably put it there. So check it out. You can find it at tspaz.com or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and right under today's episode, you'll see the full review of this book. And you can always help us out completely painlessly by doing what? Online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day today is called After the Rain by Nickelback. Now, I don't know a lot about Nickelback. I've heard a few of their songs, and I overall kind of like them. Uh, I also know that there's almost like an entire cult of hatred of all things Nickelback. I really don't know why. I've heard all their songs sound the same, but I think all of everybody's songs kind of sound the same in the last 15, 20 years. So I don't know what's so unique about them. But maybe it's because it's not really a style of music I listen to that much, so I'm just out of touch. I do like this song, and I like the words more than the song itself. Let me give you some of the lyrics, and maybe that'll make the song more enjoyable for you. Again, it's called After the Rain. All your life scramble and scurry. Take your time rather than hurry. Never too late to write the best of your story. Remember to breathe or earth, or else you're going to be sorry. Life's no race, it's a companion. Always face with reckless abandon. The ticket to life, as my mother once told me, stick with your pride and you're going to be lonely. Everybody says that life takes patience, but nobody wants to wait. Everybody says we need salvation, but nobody wants to be saved. The light in the tunnel is just another runaway train. The blue skies we wait on are going to have to come after the rain. Spend your days happy and grateful. Avoid the taste of wanting and wasteful. Every good thing will come in moderation. Envy and greed will only lead to frustration. Choose your friends, carefree and kindly. Choose your words, carefully, careful and wisely. Always be there to lend a comforting shoulder. One will be there to share one day when you're older. All mistakes committed upon us always take a toll on the conscience. Every regret is a debt that you live with. Never forget to remember forgiveness. Pretty good advice to life in general. Everybody says that life takes patience, but nobody wants to wait. You know, specifically when I look at our younger generation right now, I think this is one of their problems. They want complete fulfillment in their first job in their first month. That seems to be what they're looking for. I don't know who sold them that bill of goods, but those of us who have been around a little longer know that doesn't happen. Your first job, everybody, everything sucks, and you work your ass off, and it's called opportunity. You know, and there's a lot of things in life that are that way. This show has become an amazing part of my life. It's the most fulfilling thing I ever did. For the first six months, it was the most work I ever did. It wasn't the most physically demanding work, but it was an incredible amount of work because I had full time, a full-time life. I mean, a business, multiple businesses. I was working 60 hours a week, and then to be able to do this on top of it, it took patience. But it also took, like, 
there's a lot about waiting, but there's also a lot about making things happen. And I had to be patient for the results, but active to set the path to getting them. And I'll tell you what, the more we do good for others in our lives, I believe in karma. I believe it's a real thing because it's a natural reaction. It doesn't have to be an energetic, spiritual thing. You're good to people, people are going to be good to you. You're shitty to people, people are going to be shitty to you. This is a great song to end a week on. I'll send you guys off into the weekend with it. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough for you and if they don't.